Hi, welcome back to the People Data for Good podcast. I'm Al Adamson, and I just had a fantastic conversation with Brad Williams. He heads HR technology and people analytics at Northwestern Mutual. He also formerly worked at HP and Sears, so he's been in the space for quite a number of years, not only doing people analytics and HR tech, but also workforce planning. So he has a very clear narrative of how those both work together. Uh, we also talked about his educational background in psychology and how that influences thinking in not only doing analytics, but how to engage with stakeholders and prioritize. Uh, he also shared some tidbits about himself along the way. Uh, so really enjoyed my conversation. Hope you enjoy the conversation with Brad. And uh, here you go. Thanks for being here. Welcome back. I'm here with Brad Williams. Brad, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be here, Al. Uh, it's great to be talking with you finally. We've gone through some start and stops, both technologically and on the calendars, but this is a conversation that I've wanted to have for a long time because you obviously have been in the space for many years, uh, but you've also done both workforce analytics and workforce planning. And now you're leading HR technology at Northwestern Mutual. So if you would introduce yourself a bit and you know what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So Brad Williams, I uh, head up our HR technology and people analytics teams at Northwestern Mutual. I've been there uh, a little over two years now. I joined uh, at an odd time uh, in, in our world history here shortly after the pandemic started, so May of 2020, uh, and have been leading those teams since. Well, I mean, when we first talked, I was really taken aback by you going deep into the technology side, also the analytics side, but also the planning side. And so, you know, before we get into like the work, you know, I'd love to hear about how you got into the space. I mean, your educational background and your inspirations for doing so. So if you would share a little bit about, you know, how that happened. Yeah, no, I, I would love to. And I'll try to, uh, you know, not be too verbose here because I could probably spend uh, a good four or five hours talking about just me, my background and, and what got me here. Because as, as you can imagine, it's full of twists and turns and, uh, you know, fate or luck along the way. So uh, growing up, you know, the first thing that I remember I wanted to be was a, an architect. Uh, there, there was a lot of appeal about, I think, building things, designing things, seeing your work out there in the world. One of the maybe uh, more traumatic events of, of my childhood that I think shaped me, although, you know, you don't really realize it shapes you in the moment. Uh, in high school, my older brother, who was two years older than me, got into a pretty serious car accident, had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, he was in a coma for a couple of days, came out just fine, uh, but had a long road of recovery, uh, more so on, on the mental side than the physical side. Um, he had a couple of broken bones, but those heal a lot quicker than uh, mentally. And I was really interested in seeing how his personality, his mindset uh, changed. And, and it got me interested in how people think, how people behave, why some people uh, do the things that they do, or you know, two people can look at the exact same event and walk away with very different interpretations, understandings. Uh, and so in the moment, I never really, I don't think I was consciously aware of the draw to psychology, but I, I you know, for the next couple of years, kind of passionately pursued architecture, but ended up when I went to, to school at the University of Tennessee, I went in undecided. And after taking a psychology class as part of first year, I really had a draw towards that. And mm -hmm. so without you know, being a, a perhaps naive 18, 19 year old kid, uh, I realized I, I didn't really think about what I wanted to do with a psychology degree. It was just interesting. I wanted to learn more about it, and I declared it my major. So uh, I've always been drawn to, to the psychological side of, of human behavior, 
but I, all the while I've had a, a uh, I think natural ability and, and an interest in data analytics numbers. Uh, and so over time, I really kind of stumbled into the world of HR analytics and my first, uh, you know, gig outside of uh, grad school was at a small healthcare company. I uh, was a that I guess the lone recruiter uh, in-house there, but I was really attracted. So that got me into HR. But I was really attracted to the data behind it. You know, how wh- where can you find the best candidates? Uh, how long does it take you to fill positions? How many interviews should you do? And it was really kind of foundational level data and analytics that attracted me to it. And then through networking, I stumbled on what I would consider my first kind of uh, true HR data analytics planning role. And that was with uh, Sears up just north of of Chicago as part of their people analytics team, or I, I think they were HR analytics at the time. And Absolutely loved that gig. I, I think most of us probably are familiar with the the history of, of Sears and you know kind of the the curvature that they went on from being a, a very dominant uh, company uh, in the 80s and 90s to where they were when when I joined them. But they put a lot of investment emphasis on data, on analytics, and particularly in in the HR space. And so that grew my, I guess, interest, my love, my passion for for analytics. Um, but I knew, candidly, Sears wasn't the, the long-term solution for me or the, the place I wanted to be long-term, just given uh, some of the challenges that they had as, as an organization. So I moved over uh, to a tangent role, as, as I think of it, to your point, on the on the workforce planning side. So I moved over to Hewlett Packard doing uh, workforce planning, which, uh, you know, applies, I think, a lot of the same principles. There's a lot of uh, synergy, as to use the, the fun corporate buzzword there, between the, the HR analytics world and the world of workforce planning. And you know, oftentimes they go hand in hand in a lot of organizations, but really discovered what workforce planning was. I, I didn't go into that role with a full appreciation or even uh, a, a real foundational level understanding of what workforce planning is, why it was important, what its mission was, what value it could bring to the organization. It was really just, a, this sounds like a great opportunity. It leverages a lot of the skills that I have. It aligns well with my my interests. So I took it, uh, absolutely loved it and developed a, a passion for that side of the house as, as I think of it on, on workforce planning and really understanding how you can use a lot of the data that you've got available to you to set plans for your workforce to, to connect into finance, to understand how salaries and labor costs can align with talent strategies and all have it make sense so that um, you know, you're in the best position for not only where you are now as an organization, but where you are going to be, you know, three, five, ten years down the road. And so, one of the one of the interesting things with Hewlett Packard during my time there was, um, it, you know, and I, I suppose this isn't unique for for Hewlett Packard, but uh, they went through a ton of M and A activity. And so, uh, shortly after I was there, maybe a year, year and a half into my time there, they announced they were splitting into two different companies. They were going on HP Inc., Hewlett Packard Enterprise. One of the exciting things for me in, in workforce planning and the uh, business unit that I supported, it was the corporate functions. So it was really the, the function that didn't align neatly to one side of the house or the other. So it involved heavy workforce planning to kind of divide that workforce into those two different organizations, make sure that each side of the house, uh, each new company was going to have the talent fit within the cost envelope. And all the while, it's a it's a dynamic uh, uh, moving target because people are coming and going throughout. So you don't ever have this static snapshot of 
people that are here, people that will always be here and how to divide them. You're constantly having to make adjustments and uh, adjust on the fly. So um, we did a couple of... Yeah. Let me jump in there, if I may, because I am just uh, I'm smiling. And if you're listening to this, you don't see my smile, obviously. But it is the case where, you know, here you are in Rocky Top, you're studying psychology. And all of a sudden, you're you know, a few years later, you're at Sears. And for those who don't know, Sears was a pioneer in what we're now calling people analytics. Uh, you go back to the Sears service profit chain, they're validating at that time in the late 90s, employee satisfaction connection yeah. to customer, customer satisfaction and turn you know financial outcomes. And HP, same time during the 90s, was one of the pioneers in uh, mitigate or calculating the risk of turnover. And so again, these are very cutting edge companies that you're entering into. So the platform for learning that you're getting very early on in your career is just, it, it, it's phenomenal. So, you know, yeah. I, I just want to call that out and, you know, celebrate it. So, you know, from, you're about to say it, at that stage at HP or HPE, I don't know what side of the house you, you went, <laughs> you're doing some interesting projects that led you to where you are today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and maybe real quick to go back to, to Sears and HP and what you just called out. You're exactly right. At, you know, being that early on in my career, I, I didn't have an appreciation for the level of sophistication or how far ahead they were in really trying to understand that space and really kind of uh, evolve and, and be pioneers, as, as you put it. I went into those roles and just you know, thought, well, this is how every company operates. This is par for the course. And it's only been in, you know, further in my career and, and talking with others in the space that I've grown to even partially appreciate um, what great opportunities those were that candidly, that, again, I think luck, fate, whatever you want to uh, uh, call it, really helped shape my my career where I am today. So those are things that uh, I appreciate you calling out because I I certainly wouldn't be where I am without some of those uh, early experiences that at the time I absolutely loved but felt very mundane and ordinary and you know par for the course. I didn't realize how great of uh, opportunities they truly were until you know a decade later. Or so so. Um, yeah, at, at NM, we're, you know, uh, we're in the middle of a, a, a transformation. And I, I always hesitate to say that because every company that I've been at so far has been in the middle of, of some transformation. So it, it comes across as, as cliche, um, but I really think that there's uh, a lot of exciting opportunities that are going on at at Northwestern Mutual, and, and one of the things that I think makes it a, a great place to work. You know, the pandemic has really uh, impacted Northwestern Mutual, and I, and I think it, that's true of a lot of organizations and, and companies. But you know, historically, NM has been a very uh, uh, you know on campus. Uh, workforce, a lot of networking, a lot of in-person meetings, a lot of just, it's been a very tight-knit interpersonal community and, and company. And as a result of the pandemic, them, along with a lot of companies, had to adjust to how do we work in a more hybrid world? How do we kind of expand um some of the talent pools that we know we need for the future if we want to keep up um, and keep ahead of some of our competition, some of our competitors. So a lot of investment in the technology space and the platforms that um, our clients use and, and our field advisors uh, rely on. And so that's been a lot of the work that uh, we've done, you know, certainly in my two and a half years there, but you know, it preceded me as well. In, how do we how do we enable that? How do we understand um, what are the the what's the workforce of the future look like for NM? How do we make sure that we're getting the talent in the door? Um, and so there's there's a lot of you know um, 
fun uh, things that are going on. It doesn't always feel fun. I, I hesitate to say that word because, you know, uh, there's there's deadlines, there's deliverables as there are with all things, which, you know, at, at, at times don't always feel like the most fun thing. But a lot of them are really um, core to what I would say are HR analytics. It's, you know, I don't want to position that as it's, it's not groundbreaking stuff because it is um, in the sense of how we're tackling it and what we're looking at and, and what it means for NM. But it's a lot of, you know, data metrics analysis on recruiting, where do candidate, where do good candidates come from? What's our internal to external mix look like when we're going out and hiring people? A lot of, you know, deep dives on attrition, as you can imagine. And I, I know most of your listeners will appreciate uh, the the external labor market that's out there and the war on talent or you know whatever you want to call it and how competitive that is. And so there's a ton of focus, a ton of emphasis, a ton of uh, data swirling around a ton of analysis, a ton of insight on, you know, kind of the, the core principles or the core metrics of, of HR, but really just diving deep into understanding, uh, what that looks like and how best we can leverage that to make good decisions for the future of NM and the talent that we've got. Well, with that as the staging, Tell me and our listeners your thoughts around the importance of aligning HR technology with people data and analytics and and designing for the future of work, whether that be workforce planning or whatever the language is that you're using there at M. Because, um, and I'll preface this by saying this, is that many organizations have it be two different people, two different functions, and there's often, you know, disalignment. So there's obviously value in that, you know, alignment and bringing it within one group and one leader. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I've got my, my personal opinions here and, and maybe I'll, I'll let those, um, uh, come to light here a little bit, but during my time at NM, I, I you know I suppose I, I glossed over this fact. When I joined NM, my my remit was workforce planning and people analytics. HR technology was handled separately, um, and about a year into into my tenure there, there was uh, you know we moved the pieces around. My my boss, I've worked with him. Uh, at a couple of different stops uh, is is one to um, rearrange the deck chairs from time to time. And so my remit changed and I took on HR technology um, and I transitioned workforce planning over to uh, another member of our leadership team. And I really have become a, a firm believer in in having the technology and the data together. Again, I, I don't know uh, how much I truly appreciated it before that decision came to light or before that's the, the course that we were set on. But I absolutely believe that those two things should, you know, at the very least be, you know, hand in hand and partner together because there's so many impacts and, and collaboration opportunities that technology will do that if data and the analytics side of the house aren't involved in or don't understand or um, aren't brought into some of those conversations, there's all sorts of impacts. And, and it goes both ways too. And so you know, one of the things that I'm constantly asking my team is, uh, and I'm reading myself, are what are other people analytics, HR analytics, talent analytics teams measuring? What metrics are they looking at? What types of analysis are they doing? And I think there's great opportunity in the synergy of analytics and technology to help shape that. Because oftentimes, my experience has been on the analytics side of the house, I read something and I'm like, it would be great if we could measure that. We should do exactly what they're doing. But from a technology standpoint, we're not collecting that data. There's no infrastructure to uh, get any of that insight so that the analytics team can leverage it, look at it, and um, run analytics on it. And I think that's where there's a lot of opportunity is um, 
not just understanding how things work today, but what does the future look like? What are things that we want to measure? If we, if we really wanted to look at, you know, employee productivity, for example, how would we measure it? Let's not limit ourselves to the data that we have available today, which is always going to be a constraint, but really how do we, um, how do we collect the information that we need from a technology standpoint so that we can do some of the the analytics so i i strongly you know and my stance has grown even stronger over uh my time here that those two things um bring a whole lot of value when they're brought together well Brad, you and I had fun with this before, and I'm going to take some risk and do this right here, right now. You ready? Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, I throw that in there because uh, I, I could hug you for saying what you just said. It is massively important, and I think it's not truly understood. If you are just a people analytics professional who it has a background in analytics, or data science and doesn't understand HR technology, there's that blind spot. On the other side, if you're in HR technology and say, well, just go do your analytics over there. And to understand the relationship between the two at scale over time um, is uh, you know, absolutely critical. So you know, I want to celebrate that. And you also um, highlighted something for me that I want to get your take on uh, because you said employees and I have long uh, put forth that people analytics, the way it's evolved over the years has largely focused on the existing workforce. Whereas workforce planning is looking at not only the existing workforce, but relative to labor markets or talent markets. And yeah. is that part of the distinction that you made in uncoupling those there at NM? Yeah, so I, I yeah, I think there is there is a lot of that there. I think, you know, one of the things and maybe this uh you know um gives a peek be behind the curtain here a little bit in the transition that we had uh within NM on the workforce planning space and and how do you carve out people analytics from workforce planning? Because in in a lot of organizations those are under the same umbrella part of the same team, uh, because similar to technology, there's a whole lot of synergy collaboration. And I, I think that's where um, me and uh, my peer who heads up workforce planning at NM uh, have really made that distinction of when we're looking at the, the here, the now, the historical and really understanding what we've got, the employee base, it's that is firmly kind of people analytics and where the, you know, the remit falls, falls on my side of the house. Um, whereas when we start to think about the future and forward looking projections and what our needs are and where attrition's headed and, and the external labor market and where the best talent pools are for, for certain skills or, or roles that we need for the future, that is firmly, you know, in, in the workforce planning side of the house. So I do think, you know, the, the long witted answer to, to your question there is, yeah, I, I do think that that's how I think of it. Again, you need to partner together. You need to work together. You really need to be tied at the hip to make all of that make sense and tell a coherent story and, and, um, provide the value that it's it's intended to have but that's i i suppose how i kind of think of it there well i i again i'm not going to do the clapping machine again but what i am going to call out and i think you did a great job describing it is there a lot of work there there's a lot of value to be had certainly but it, you know historically <clears throat> chros and executives in general have not grown up with people analytics in 2022 or workforce planning in 2022. And there is, there's a lot of technologies. There's a lot of work to do to generate the insight to make good decisions, you know, at speed, at scale and in sustainable ways. So now I, you know, I celebrate the way you're not only a thought about it, but how you've allocated the work and put someone in charge of, you know, these different aspects. So if, where are you today? And I ask this question all the time. And so if you listen to my podcast in, in the past, you probably know what's coming is that this nature of governance 
you know, who for the sake, you know, who are we serving? And, you know, who is helping you prioritize and, and set your, you know, research agenda or project, you know, agenda, you know, for your work. So can you speak to, you know, who your audience is? Is it, does it stay within HR and go up to, you know, the executive, the HR leadership team? Do you have a broader audience for the insights that you're generating? What does that look like? Yeah, so I don't think there's there's one answer here. I think you know this is uh, it's one of the things that I'm passionate about. Is I, I firmly believe in the the power of data, the power of analytics, the insights that it can provide. I I also you know out of the other side of my mouth, caution that it's never the silver bullet. It's not going to give you all the answers. It's not going to tell you everything. In fact. As I think of it, I read this yesterday. You know, people analytics is a lot more uh, impactful and effective when it leads to conversations, not necessarily when it leads directly to action. And and I think that that sometimes gets lost in in people just want the answer. People just want to know like what to do. So you know read this data and tell me what I should do based on it rather than uh, maybe stirring some of the conversation. But to get back to your question, I think it it really is... Th- there's no one-size-fits-all. I, From my perspective here at, at NM, uh, you know, I think of our audience as... Uh, you know, I suppose different segments, but we're, we're meant to kind of serve all of them. And I, I think there's um, employees at large, there's people leaders, there's, you know, employees internal to HR, all with their different needs, perspectives, um, certainly depending on what their remit is and, and all the different COEs. But then I, I do think it's kind of core to uh, make sure you're you're managing up, you're meeting the needs of your executive members um, and, and even your boss's expectations. But I, I'm never one to really um, solely work up. I, I really like to work across and work down and understand where the needs are, how best to serve the greatest number of individuals that we've got. And so my, you know, my passion is really around partnering with anybody, everybody, as much as possible to really understand what their needs are, what their challenges are, what they're struggling with, um, what questions they have so that we can take all of that and figure out, you know, what's maybe unique to that individual or that persona or that group of individuals and, and maybe tailor things for them. But then also what's maybe common? What are those questions or challenges that seem to be taking place regardless of where you sit in the organization or whether you're an employee individual contributor or whether you're a people manager or whether you're you know an executive and and really start to shape your your roadmap and your your products and your analytics based on all those different data points and kind of weighing them in some you know crazy uh algorithm in your head to make sense and kind of put your your effort um, based on those conversations and that feedback that that uh, you're hearing. You know, with that in mind, do you do that in a systematic way on a recurring basis or do you do that kind of ad hoc? Not that there's a right and wrong answer. It's just the the idea of prioritization uh, the challenge of prioritization is something that you know, everyone's trying to you know, crack the nut on because the more value deliver, the correct me if I'm wrong, the appetite increases. Yeah. It's like, oh, do that, do that. No, there's actually you know work there, and you know, I know in our previous discussion you're talking about building tools so there's sustainable value being generated. But yeah, can you go back to that initial question? You know, do you have a systematic approach to prioritization, or is it just based on your uh, informal conversations with your key stakeholders? Yeah, you may be you may be outing me a little bit on this one, Al, because uh, <laughs> I, I I really want to say, just uh, you know, naturally, I've got this great method, this great system, and here's the checklist that I follow, and here's the criteria, and how I weigh certain pieces. Uh, but the reality is, you know, I'd be lying to you if I if I said that. I I do think it is. Um, 
a lot more, you know, as my bosses wanted to say, a lot more art than, than science to how to weigh all of those different things and how, and how to go out and seek it. And I think that's one of the things too, that, you know, I'm a lot more, I, I try to be really intentional and really proactive in seeking feedback when there's maybe more of a lull and they're they're you know i'm i'm never really sitting on my hands waiting for work to come in but where there's maybe less uh work going on in the system less demand to be really intentional to go out and connect with stakeholders connect with um uh employees people leaders uh and, and understand things from their perspective to shape some of that whereas you know when demand seem to be crushing a little bit. Um, you know, I, I'm a whole lot less proactive in asking people what more they want because to your point, it, it's just going to add to the, to the workload. But I, I, I tell my team that it's a really good problem to have. And, and it sounds, um, you know, maybe disingenuous to some degree. Uh, and it's full of challenges, but that demand and, and that, you know, sense that maybe we're, we're too stressed uh, or too stretched with the the work that's coming at us is a really good problem to have because it it shows the value that we're bringing and the appetite that we've got and by by its nature I think it forces us to prioritize and I, and I rarely prioritize in a silo by myself where I look at a, you know, one through end list and I go, this is, you know, the top three things that we're going to do. It's a very collaborative effort with my team, with our stakeholders. And there's tough conversations, there's puts and takes, there's things that don't always make people happy when their things aren't uh, right at the top of the list. But I think that's where when you're going out, when you're having those conversations and building those relationships, you get that, you build those connections that give people the the confidence and the insight that you are making the right decisions in the interest of of the broader organization it may not be in in their own best interest but i think you get you know perhaps some brownie points for for doing that so i think it serves multiple purposes there well yeah just for the record i'm not trying to call you out in fact quite the opposite i'm trying i want to celebrate what you're doing because there's been many leaders, many organizations that have hired a data scientist, you know, people with PhDs and the like, and they don't work out. You know, and it invites the question, you know, what the heck's going on? They are obviously great at data and analytics and might even be, you know, a great technologist, but they don't have the relationship equity. They don't have the ability to activate the insight that they're generating. And frankly, going back in my career, it was something that I kind of learned the hard way, quite frankly. So I want to just call out that your ability not only to have the technical and analytical chops, but their relationship chops, if you will, to you know make that happen. And correct me if I'm wrong too, and it was embedded in what you just shared, you're creating anticipation for what is forthcoming. So you're not just going into this black box and pulling out magic with a big aha. Is that a, you know, a fair statement? Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think that's absolutely fair. I, you know, there's, I don't want to say I've never, you know, pulled a rabbit out of a hat and said, here you go. Nobody asked for this. Nobody was talking about this. Here you go. And, and surprise uh, people. I, I think there's, you know, um, uh, fun in doing that. Uh, oftentimes, I don't know that it works out as well as you think it does but I, I do believe in bringing people along and, and helping kind of understand um, what you're doing what questions you're trying to answer based on some of the things that you're hearing based on some of the things that they're saying uh, I'm you know my favorite quote and I, I say it you know my, my team is probably so sick of me me saying this because uh, you know in 90 percent of the team meetings that I have, I, I pull this quote out uh, by Henry Ford of, if I asked the customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And I really, you know, as, as much as I love that quote, I also, you know, scale it back a little bit where sometimes our customers, our stakeholders really just want a bicycle. Um, so we don't need to go off and build a car and, and kind of surprise them with 
this great innovative thing that they might not need. Sometimes, like, don't get me wrong, surprises can be great and, and exceeding people's expectations and, and really producing a, a car when they had a faster horse in mind can be phenomenal. But I've, I've found maybe similar to, to your experience as well, that in bringing people along, you kind of are better able to truly meet their need and still, you know, surpass their expectations from time to time, but really hit the bullseye a lot more frequently than you otherwise would. And that's not to say, you know, I'm shooting 100% in, in that arena by any means. You're, you're going to take swings. You're going to miss. You're, you're not going to hit the nail on the head every single time. I think that's part of the learning journey that everybody in this profession goes through. But it's really, how do you adapt? How do you adjust? How do you continuously take that feedback so that you're always getting incrementally better, a little bit closer to um, what is truly needed out there. And also, you know, you're you're taking your own um, perspective. I, yeah. I I try to balance because I, I I don't want you know I guess my my advice to to myself to my team and you know perhaps to your to your listeners here is don't lose sight over yourself either don't be so um subservient to your customers and your partners and your stakeholders to whatever they want you're in that position for a reason and you should be shaping you know some of those uh products some of those tools some of those experiences just as much the you know the the talk track i suppose is don't do that in a silo. Make sure you're you're kind of equal partners, bringing people along and and sharing your your perspective, your expertise along the way versus some of those uh, you know surprises or ahas. Well, I, I, mean, I love what you're sharing, and you know what I want to do now. Yeah, you know, well, actually, I'm going to say something first about what you just shared because you're humanizing this work. Uh, when people hear analytics, they often get defensive. It's like, oh, someone's coming in the room to sound smart and I don't understand it. Therefore, you know, I'm going to be on my heels. And I love that you make it very approachable and very uh, yeah, kind of co-creation, joint ownership, if you will. So I just want to call that out and celebrate it. So in, in the balance of their time, I would love to do uh, three things. Uh, I would love to talk about some specific uh, projects that you're working on. And I'd like to talk about the future a bit, because obviously here we are coming up in the fall of 2022. And we're in this, what I'll call age of perpetual disruption. And you referred to it earlier. So, you know, what's the future of our discipline in people analytics? And last thing, I have some rapid fire questions that I'd like to wrap up with. But so specific projects, you know, there's so much we can do. And again, you touched on some of those. What's top of mind for you right now? What's getting you excited and drawing your energy? Yeah, so I think there's there's maybe two things. And, it, you know, again, part of this goes back to what I mentioned earlier, where I don't know that uh, I, I, I think a lot of people are always looking for the the next best thing and the next great analysis and and you can lose sight over you know some of the basics and and some of the things that people really want and i you know i'd be i'd be lying to you if i if i told you i'm equally excited about that stuff as i am about the new innovative uh, stuff that's that's out there that's maybe a little bit more untapped but i still get really jazzed and really excited about some of the, you know, what I think of as kind of core metrics and, and diving deep into them and really understanding and and understanding it in the context of this organization, this team. And so, you know, there's there's uh, a couple of things that we're looking at there. So I'll give two answers and then maybe one that's a little bit more on the horizon. But, uh, you know, I can't get away from attrition. Uh, I, I don't know that uh, many of us can, especially this day of age. So uh, there's a lot of work going on and just understanding that and and what steps we can do to be a little bit more proactive on on the retention front and understand you know when people are vulnerable to leave, what we can do to prevent it, you know uh, and, and you know I, I always kind of uh, talk that back a little bit because i I don't want 
zero attrition. And I don't want anybody under the impression that we should have zero attrition. There's there's a healthy amount. So how do we make sure that we're we're finding that healthy amount? And and there's a lot of work going on in um, understanding that. And then the second thing that's going on is really around uh, some of the internal movement that we have here at NM. And how do we how do we best share talent and move people into opportunities that maybe aren't right in front of them? Um, and we're while we're a Fortune 100 company, from an employee standpoint, we're not a huge organization, but we still have our challenges in uh, being a little bit siloed in our talent and, and people, you know, really just being aware or exposed to the opportunities that are maybe right next to them or right above them and not, you know, on this other department, this other function way over there where their skills could be just as applicable. And so it's, it's really understanding how do we set up that ecosystem and how do we use data to uh, inform some of those uh, journeys that people have and some of the opportunities that they could be exposed to. And that's where, again, you know, to, to plug back my earlier comment, there's huge synergy and huge opportunities on the technology side and the data and analytics side and where you really see those things come together to design and create a optimal solution for doing that. And then, you know, the, the forward-looking one that's maybe a little bit more on uh, the horizon uh, that we haven't dug too deep into just yet, but I, I, you know, I wish we would have. It's just a matter of priorities and capacity and and things. But it's really around um, just the, I think, the burnout and the the connectivity that people have, and and attempting to understand. Um, What's really behind that? What's driving that? I think, you know, again, NM's not immune to the fact that people feel a little bit isolated or maybe disconnected and, and there's a sense of burnout, especially, you know, working from home and, you know, your hours never really come to an end. You're always expected to be on, be connected. And so what are some of the, the data points that we can look into to really understand that? and provide recommendations, solutions to, to the best of our ability, curb that as much as possible. So um, some early work going on there to really understand that. And I think that will be a, a theme in 2023 as well. So just to like go deeper into that, like if you had, just to summarize, attrition, internal mobility, and you know, burnout and well-being. And so yeah. all of that, you know, would take you know, the I call it behavioral data that you might be using. You know, the core HR data, survey data, potentially qualitative data that you gather through interviews or focus groups or, or what have you. So that would take you know a systematic approach. You know, someone with your skill set to think. You know, how are we going to actually analyze this? You know, over time, and it also correct me if I'm wrong has impacts on diversity, equity, and inclusion, yeah. as well as learning, because there's data that you're capturing underneath there. So what I want to ask pointedly is you have all these projects, and I've seen many an organization have those be disparate projects and not looking at the overlapping nature of that. Is that part of what you do is connect these dots to see how, you know what one initiative does to another? Yes, that's that's absolutely true. And it's, you know, I think one of the things you brought up a great example, and, and it's a huge and it's not just huge at, at NM. I think it's a it's a point of emphasis and a priority um, for a lot of organizations and, and understandably and rightfully so on the DE&I front. And and what we're really trying to do is shift from a more like uh, you know, I, I don't know the right way to say this, um, but a bit more of a programmatic DE&I perspective to really embedding that in everything that we're doing and, and break down some of the like channels that exist and really understand things more holistically. Like to your, to your point of, you know, if we look at just, you know, TA or selection or you know the the onboarding experience that's that's 
well and good. And, and there's a lot to dig into there. There's a lot to understand. But if you're ignoring all of these other lenses around learning, around DE&I, around um, engagement and retention, you're, you're missing a lot of the story, a lot of the narrative. And so I do think that that is one of those things that uh, you know, you can never emphasize enough is how does all of this connect together? And, and I, I, you know, my opinion is it's really challenging for people, myself included, to really understand that and, and wrap their head around it and not think of things in, in a programmatic siloed way. And so I think that's a constant battle for that I have with myself. Um, and I know in kind of talking through with with stakeholders, with partners and, and sharing out insights, it's one of those things that I do my best. And, you know, I have my shortcomings, uh, but do my best to, you know, really uh, make sure that that's top of mind and apparent in, in the work that's being done and not just, uh, you know, here's one piece of analysis as a standalone piece, but how does this connect to the bigger challenge, the the broader uh, narrative. This is so important. Such a, you know, thank you for sharing that because I, yeah, not many people can do that. And um, oftentimes I hear, oh, it's too complex. Just stay in your lane and like, no, time out. You know, we, we, we have to celebrate the complexity sometimes. And I think this is certainly you know, time to do it. And, you know, in that regard, there's one topic that I want to touch on because we can talk about use cases and projects all day. I realize that. Um, but one thing that's happening in our space is, you know, when you talk about technology selection, so just to recap, you're also leading HR technology and yep. analytics. The technologies that you select impact the data and measurements that will be created, which in turn will impact the analytics that you can or cannot do. Is that something that is top of mind always as you, you know, look to improve your technology and the ecosystem of technologies within HR and potentially out? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's, again, it's one of those things that, um, you know, can't be understated or can't be overstated enough is how and where can you, I think, supplement your own data analytics with technology? Because again, to, to the earlier discussion that we had, there's, there's a lot of demand out there and, and teams that are, that are, um, you know, moving up the maturity curve in the analytics space are no doubt dealing with more and more demand and capacity doesn't, at least in my experience, grow at the pace that that demand does. And, and from a technology perspective, I think that's where there's a lot of value to supplement, uh, the, the analytics space to understand what analytics, what insights can be provided by this technology so that there's less demand on on the people analytics team to do other things and and I think that's constantly one of those evalu evaluative pieces to really make sure that um, we're we're choosing the best technology we're integrating the best technology into um, our tech stack that helps out there. It doesn't mean it's the only criteria. It doesn't mean that that's the, that's the deciding factor in all of it, but it is something that, uh, I weigh because again, I'm, I'm constantly dealing with the, the demand and capacity and how can we make sure that we're striking that right balance and technology, uh, can certainly help there. Yeah. And that's a whole <laughs> discussion that we could have as as well and uh but it's certainly we have to remain as people and leaders uh educated consumers of what's out there what innovations are, are happening so it, and i know that that's something that you do um i want to you know, sneak in this question and it is yet another topic that we can spend all afternoon uh talking about and it's one of data privacy and ethics. And there's legislation, you know, not only at the federal level, but state levels, there's obviously GDPR, and there's new legislation that's either imminent or being considered all around not only the country, but around the world. 
Um, so, you know, again, this is a massive topic, but can you just give a quick snapshot about how you address that as the leader of both the HR technology uh, ecosystem and people analytics? Yeah. So first off, that's, uh, again, one of the areas of, of many that I don't try to do all on my own. Uh, I rely on a lot of uh, good partners, you know, in in uh, across HR in the legal space uh, to help make sure we're we're getting that right and we're uh, adjusting where we need to. But we're also you know not losing sight over our own philosophy and and uh, vision for what we want from a data privacy protection standpoint. So, you know, the the short answer there is it it takes a whole lot of collaboration and conversation and understanding. Um, and and it's one of those things that I don't think ever will uh it, it, it won't ever stop, and and maybe that that comes across in in um, a negative way. But I, I think that's right. I'm I'm a huge believer in uh, data privacy, data protection. You know, I, I don't know that people are gonna you know disagree with with that statement. So perhaps it goes without saying. But I do think that part of our role um, in in people that touch data in some form or fashion is to be good data stewards, data owners of the, you know, sometimes sensitive confidential information that we have, uh, abide by obviously all the, the, uh, legal right regulations that are in place, but also, you know, doing what's right by the employee, by, uh, the, the worker in general, um, regardless of what you know, a, a legislative piece of, of, of um, um, regulation says. So I, I think there's always a lot to consider. And it's, again, one of those things where I, you know, probably on at least one call a week um, talking through uh, those types of challenges and issues and how we want to think about it and what the future looks like, what adjustments we need to make. So uh, it's a it's a team effort there. Well, you know, thank you for sharing that because one of the questions I had was, you know, the frequency. And so, you know, once a week, because you're right, it's so much is changing and it's hard for any one person to stay on on top of. And it is going to impact what we can do in, in the future, uh, both in terms of constraints, but also in additional possibilities because data is being created, you know, all the time. So with that, you know, what are your hopes for the future? I mean, where, what do you see coming next? Not only there at uh, Northwestern Mutual, but in our space in general. Yeah. So I, I think there's a couple of things, um, you know, the things that I'm most excited about, uh, and, and some of this is, uh, Perhaps a little bit uh, selfish. I think there's there's maybe two things. One is uh, a bit more selfish than the other. Um, but the first piece is just around the the skills economy, uh, and and really how do we understand and leverage uh, the skills that individuals have, the skills that um, are needed for certain opportunities, um, and and do matching based on that and present the right opportunities and upskill where needed. And I, I know, you know, a lot of organizations are in the midst of that journey currently, uh, and some are further ahead than others. NM is on that journey as well. And I think it's a really exciting thing that's going to be no doubt a, a multi-year journey to, uh, really get to where I think we we want to be. But I'm really excited about that type of uh, opportunity that's ahead of us, because I think that's a, it's, yeah, you know, cliche, but it's a game changer for organizations and for employees to be able to leverage that power uh, and that information to find their next opportunity to find stretch uh, assignments to promote learning and and really understand what are the requirements that are needed if I want to be, you know, chief 
whatever one day. Here's here's how I can get there. Here's different paths. Here's learning opportunities. Here are the skills that I need to develop. Here's where I'm falling short. And I think you know there's there's a lot that can go into that. I think there's there's human elements around just uh, you know feedback and coaching that won't ever be replaced by technology or, or data. So it's, you know, not a, uh, a Terminator type of, of world where we're, we're replaced by robots. But I think that's a, a really exciting direction. And then the other, again, that I'm personally really excited about that I see a shifting tide in is really just, it's a little bit of the future of work. And Specifically around where, how, what work looks like. I, you know, you, you, we've seen over the last even short while here and certainly zooming out over the last, you know, decade, two decades, a, a shift in uh, how people approach work and what work means and, you know, logging in at eight and taking an hour lunch break and then clocking out at five and really shifting to a more flexible uh, style of work and, you know, adhering a whole lot less to, you know, a, you know, a nine to five Monday through Friday. And what does that future look like? And, and, where does data, where does technology fit into all of that? I think is really exciting. And there's, there's, you know, probably again, another three hour conversation we could have at least on, on what that world could look like or possible directions and, and why it excites me so much. But that's one that I think just it, from a, you know, generational standpoint, I think is really going to continue to shift and it's going to look very different you know, five, 10, certainly 20 years from now that we'll kind of look back on, you know, this time and certainly before. And, and I think really kind of scratch our heads as to, uh, you know, why it looked the way that it did. So I, I think that's exciting just thinking about what the future holds there. Well, considering I run a company called People on the Future Work. I certainly celebrate um, what you shared there. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it takes, uh, what I get frustrated on is particularly people who have been around for a while. And this is not a criticism. It's just an observation. It's like, hey, I've been there. I've done that. I know human behavior. I know. And it's just not the case. It's that, you know, we have a different environments and we, as human beings, adapt to those environments. And, yeah. and we do so in different ways. And there's different constraints and enablers all over the place. So we have to continually study these dynamics. And so, yeah, yeah I certainly celebrate what you said, both on that front and the skills front, because, again, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Well, you know, Brad, again, we can talk all day and I'm just so happy that you've joined me today. So you, you ready for these rapid fire questions, my friend? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, so first one, what are recent and actually they can be from a while back, but what are the books or authors or those who have inspired you? Who would you uh, who comes to mind? Yeah, so I I will tell you, um, I I should have been more prepared for this question. One of the things that uh, doesn't compute in in my head so well is authors and, and who's writing what I read a ton, uh, both short articles online as well as uh, books. I think there's a lot that... So short answer is I won't call out authors because I I can't name... uh, (laughs) Most podcasts or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. But there are... I think there's a a lot in the behavioral economics space that I, I'm really intrigued by. I think, you know, Freakonomics is kind of the, the cornerstone of that. But there's been a lot more recent books. That's one of those things where, you know, I probably read not nearly as much as I would like to, but, you know, 12, 15 books a year. And over half of them are probably behavioral economics. I think, um, the two that I read probably most recently are uh, Nudge and Misbehaving, which mm-hmm. are both kind of behavioral economics books and you know help kind of understand decisions that people make and perhaps why they make those decisions. So, uh, you know, without naming authors, that's probably the the genre that I'm most interested in. 
Well, uh, if you can't see me, uh, but I'm looking behind me to see if I can find Nudge and give you a uh, <laughs> an author. But no, no, thank you for that. That's that's great. And uh, just for the record, I'm in the same genre as you. So thank you for, for sharing. Um, using the word genre again, uh, what is your go-to genre of music? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, a big kind of 2000s, maybe 90s uh rock guy uh so a lot of uh, dave matthews is kind of my my favorite so i'm still you know for a lot of people i know it kind of you know they grew out of that phase of their life in you know high school or in their 20s and and uh you know stopped paying attention there for me i still go to his concerts from from time to time still listen to his music so um i'm a big fan of dave matthews um you know a lot of uh, like Kings of Leon is is uh, a favorite of mine uh, go to right now that you know is maybe more than a, a flavor of the month because uh, it's it's had a bit of longevity for me but um, a bit more transient than you know probably Dave Matthews who's my favorite there. Now I I, I love both bands or, or Dave Matthews obviously um, as a solo artist but he has the band behind me. What's his band? Do you remember? I don't. Remember. Uh, it's just Dave Matthews band. Yeah. They, they've been a band. Duh. Yeah. Um, I came back from Russia in 2000 and I believe he had a, con a concert in San Francisco. I'm like, who is this guy? I have no idea who this guy is. I've spent five <laughs> years overseas and I'm like, okay, he's taking over the world. So no, yeah. he, he's great. So the last question, um, what do you do for fun? Uh, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll give you two answers there. So, uh, we've got, my wife and I had our firstborn, uh, she's now 18 months old. So a lot of it is just, uh, Fantastic. hanging out with her, interacting, um, and, and keeping her as, as entertained as, as possible. So that certainly gives me joy and is one of the things that I, you know, uh, as much as I love work, I, I'm always happy, uh, most of the time, I shouldn't say always, most of the time, happy to step away from work and, and spend time with her, assuming she's not in a, a fussy mood or anything. But really, uh, it's been, you know, a, a relatively small sample size of just 18 months there, but has been a, a great experience and one that definitely um, brings me a lot of joy outside of work. And then the second thing that I love to do uh, is just run um i like to go for runs uh, i went for one this morning uh and it's a great way to just i you know i, I don't know that it i would describe it as necessarily fun because uh, in the moment it doesn't always feel fun uh, but it helps me kind of think through my thoughts i get to listen to music and kind of work through whatever is going on in my head and helps me kind of unwind a little bit so it's a a little bit of a de-stressor um it doesn't necessarily you know i Again, wouldn't describe it maybe as fun always, but it's definitely one of the things that I like to do that helps me, uh, you know, get rid of stress, get rid of anxiety, work through challenges, see things from a different perspective. So uh, always like going on a, a quick run from time to time. Well, it's a wonderful thing to do. And uh, yeah, you stay healthy and keep running because it's... Uh... This is, I geek out on it. It's like, uh, you know, you're running down the road, get a little wind in your face, sun on your face and uh, yeah. get your heart pumping. It's a good thing to do. So certainly celebrate, you know, celebrating our bodies and what we can do as human beings. So, hey, Brad, uh, I want to thank you. Uh, super insightful and enjoyable discussion. Thank you for sharing with me. Thank you for sharing with our audience. How can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, so the the best way is probably uh, the the traditional way through through LinkedIn. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not the the most active poster. It's one of the things that I would like to uh, lean a little bit more into, but it's one of the things that I'm always on um, and doing a whole lot of reading, connecting with folks. So uh, if people do want to connect or, or reach out, LinkedIn's a, a great way to do so. I think I'm under Bradford Williams. Uh, so you can find me there and happy to connect and talk through things. I um, always love doing so. All right. Outstanding, Brad. Again, super appreciate you and uh, hope to see you there in Big D uh, before too long. Yeah, my All pleasure right. for having me. Thank you for listening today. 
If you want to learn more about today's guest, go to pafal.net. You'll be able to see links to the bio as well as to the video of today's program. You'll also have the chance to support this podcast and other shows that we do by becoming a Pafal community member. You can also donate if you choose. What will be helpful to support Pafal, the People Data for Good Movement, and me will be to share this episode with friends and coworkers and others who might find it valuable. Finally, for updates on upcoming episodes, shows, and events, please subscribe to our newsletter at pafal.net. At the bottom, you can also see our social media presence. So please subscribe to our company page on LinkedIn, follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. We're active as can be, and we want to provide this content to you that is timely, relevant, and actionable. So again, thank you for listening today and hope to see you soon. I also want to give a shout out to Jenna Dern, Malaz El-Sheik, and Sarah Sparnan, who without them, this show would not happen. And now go out and make some great things happen.